Hey, welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of the Faith and Coffee Brewcast with Eric Letterman. Faith and Coffee is a blog and podcast about Christian faith and life in the everyday. I'm Eric Letterman, pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Tempe, Arizona. Whether you're driving, sitting, and enjoying a cup of coffee, or whatever you're doing, I'm glad you're here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Brewcast. I am joined today by Mark Charles and Professor Sungchan Ra, co-authors of the book Unsettled Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. It came out late last year and has been uh, a whirlwind of a book to read, undoing a lot of what I learned about history, the history of the United States, and even about Abraham Lincoln. And we're going to be talking about all of that in this episode of The Brewcast. But first, let me share a little bit about our guests. So Mark Charles is a, of Navajo and Dutch American ancestry uh, or descendants and was the Washington, D.C. correspondent and columnist for the Native News Online and has served on the boards of the Christian Community Development Association, or CCDA, and the Christian Reformed Church, or CRC, which formed in 1857 out of the Reformed Church in America, or RCA, uh, which was back then known as the Dutch Reformed Church. So just to give you a little bit of background, the CRC has about a thousand congregations in the US and Canada, describes itself as Calvinist, confessional, and evangelical. And Mark has also entered the 2020 race for president of the United States as an independent on the platform uh, of building a nation where we the people truly means hashtag all the people. And the Reverend Dr. Soon Chan Ra is professor of church growth and evangelism with an emphasis in urban ministry uh, at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, the, the denominational seminary for the Evangelical Covenant Church or ECC. Uh, and in which he is an ordained minister. For those unfamiliar with the ECC, it is a self-described multi-ethnic movement of 875 congregations in the U.S. and Canada. The movement was founded in 1887 by Swedish immigrants who broke away from the Lutheran State Church of Sweden, came to the U.S. to escape persecution. And uh, on the denomination's website, it states, quote, the ECC is evangelical, but not exclusive, biblical, <laughs> but not doctrinaire, traditional, but not rigid congregational, but not independent. I love that. You can find more online. He earned his doctorate in theology at Duke University, uh, Duke, Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina, and has authored several books. The most notable that I think for our time right now is Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Troubling Times, which came out back in 2015. And I say it's most notable for our time because uh, he wrote a couple of very profound pieces in Sojourner's Magazine that some of you may be familiar with back in May about our need to lament in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and Black Lives Matter movement, especially in the face of the narrative of American exceptionalism, which is explored in, in depth in Unsettling Truth. So whew, that is a lot. Uh, but I want to give listeners some context to our conversation. Uh, so Mark Sunchan. Uh, welcome to the Faith and Coffee Brewcast, and thank you for for coming on and for going through all of. We just had a quite a whirlwind trying to figure out how to get all of our devices to work together, and then there's the time difference and the misscheduling. And but hey, we got here, so thank you both for being on the Brewcast today. It's good to see you finally. <laughs> good to be on. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Um, 
And so uh, before we get to the book, I just was hoping maybe you guys could give just a little bit of background about um, about your faith journeys. How did you get to this place in your lives to writing this book especially? And so uh, in the spirit of the first shall be last and the last shall be first, Mark is listed first on the book. So we'll start with Soon Chan. Um, just tell us a little bit about how did you get to this place and to writing this book? Sure. So I'm actually uh, born in Korea and immigrated to the United States um, when I was about six years old, right after my sixth birthday, actually. Um, and I uh, grew up in a neighborhood in Baltimore, uh, inner city neighborhood, uh, where a third of my community was black, a third of my community was white, a third were recent immigrants, mostly Asian, Korean American immigrants. Um, our neighborhood had one thing in common that was poverty. We were all poor. Uh, but yet we still couldn't find a way to connect with one another or still live in harmony with one another. Um, and, um, you know, in elementary school, we got along okay. And then in junior high school, you saw some of the racial divisions. But by senior high school, you actually have full-blown gangs at, at war with each other. Uh, so growing up in that context, I would ask questions about why is it that folks can't get along? And I thought maybe the church could provide that context where the church could be a place where people could get along and learn to live in harmony and learn to live across the differences across their cultures and races, uh, but found that in many cases it was worse in the church than actually in this inner city neighborhood that I grew up. Uh, and so part of this uh, book is actually trying to explore, well, where did uh, where do we go wrong as a church? Or what are the narratives, the imagination, the, the worldview that emerged out of the church that actually prevents us from uh, reaching across different races and cultures, and that the segregation and the ha dividing walls of hostility in the church are oftentimes even worse than what's out there in the world, and that there is probably a dysfunctional theology or a messed up ecclesiology or something that's going on that we need to unpack, uh, some truths, some hard truths that we need to unpack in order to get there. And so it was a real gift to be able to do this with my, my dear brother and friend Mark, uh, because you know uh, we ended up connecting because we would be at conferences together. And oftentimes we would actually speak either back to back or, you know, in the same night. And uh, Mark would talk about the doctrine of discovery. I would talk about lament. Mark would talk about uh, we, the people, all the people. And I would talk about, you know, the need to uh, bring healing and reconciliation. And it turns out, Hey, I think we're talking about the same thing. Uh, so it was out of that context of a friendship and out of that context of spending time together at, at uh, oftentimes at conferences where we talked about these issues uh, that we ended up saying that, you know what, this needs to be a book. And that's where the, uh, the book started. So, wow. um, it comes from my personal life story of wanting to see different races and cultures, especially in the context of the church, uh, work together and, and live side by side. Uh, but also, uh, as kind of a personal relationship with Mark and as a friendship and, uh, uh the book came out of that context as well. Beautiful. Yeah. Wow. What a story. Um, so Mark, how did you get to where you are now? What's your yeah, well, faith story? Thank you. First, let me just tell you a little bit about, um, my, introduce myself. So, Yate, Mark Charles Yenishia, Sinbake Dene and Nishle, the Tohiglini Bashi's Chin, Sinbake Dene Dasha Che, the Tohiglini Dasha In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, with our identities coming from our mother's mother. And so, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, which is why I say Sinbake Dene. Translated loosely, that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toi Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. 
My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbekedina. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also just want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from what's now known as Washington, D.C., and these are the lands of the Piscataway. Uh, the Piscataway is the nation that they have lived here. These are their traditional lands. They've stewarded these lands for hundreds, even thousands of years, and they are not gone. They are here. And I want to acknowledge the Piscataway. I want to honor them as the host people of these lands. And I want to publicly thank them for um, the even the ability for me to live here on these lands that they've been stewarding for so long. So um, my kind of faith journey, my story, you know, I was raised in what I would call a a Dutch ghetto just off of the Navajo reservation. The Christian Reformed Church had a mission to native peoples in the Southwest for over a hundred years. The first mission school was opened back there in the early 1900s. And uh, my father or my grandparents actually worked for the early missionaries as translators. And my father was born in Shiprock, New Mexico, which is on the reservation. And then after he got out of the Marines, he lived at Rehoboth, which was kind of the mission compound run by the CRC. And he was doing some teaching there and working in the school a little bit. And uh, my mother was there as a nurse. Uh, she was actually on her way to Africa to be a nurse there. Met my father. They started dating. Um, she never made it to Africa, but she uh, ended up staying in the Southwest for most of her life. So I grew up there. Um, Rehoboth started out as a boarding school. It was a uh, it was literally one of these places where the goal was to kill the Indian to save the man. Mm. And so native children were taken from their homes, put in these military style boarding schools. You know, this was happening, not just in the CRC. This was many churches and a lot of government agencies throughout the country. The, the PCUSA, including my denomination. Yeah. A lot of them ran these schools and the goal was to forcibly assimilate native peoples into Western European American quote unquote Christian culture. And so this was kind of how my grandparents, both my grandparents on my, my father's side um, were Christians, but they were brought to Christian through Christianity through the boarding school. And so because of that, even though they worked as translators, they didn't teach the language to my father. Uh, they didn't raise him up traditionally or with the ceremonies or anything else like that. All of those were cast away or shed to the side so that they could become more European and Christian. Um, and so my father didn't know the language to teach it to me, didn't know the culture to teach it to me. And mm -hmm. it was after I went to school at UCLA and it was several years after that, I was called to pastor a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. And we began wrestling with the question as a congregation, what does it mean to be native and be Christian? That got me engaged with many indigenous Christians from all over the world and eventually led my family and I back to the Navajo Nation where we lived for 11 years, um, three years in a very remote section of our reservation and then another eight years in a smaller community called Fort Defiance, but raised our family there. Our children went to um, uh, a Navajo immersion school, so they learned the culture and the language uh, at very young ages. And it was a fantastic experience, but that's the experience where I began learning about the doctrine of discovery and understanding the deep uh, marginalization of indigenous peoples in our nation today. So it was, a, it was a long journey, you know, of not only understanding what it means to be native and be Christian, 
and how could I follow Jesus as a Navajo man, but then understanding how the history of the church and the country were so set against that um, as I began studying the doctrine of discovery. And uh, yeah, as Sing Chan said, we, we met, um, I forget what year it was exactly, sometime 2010, somewhere around there, um, maybe a little bit before that, through some work we were doing with Sojourners and CCDA, and built a friendship, talking about lament, talking about uh, reconciliation, and a book came out of that. So <laughs> that's kind of where we're at. But yeah, Sing Chan and I have have become very good friends over the past uh the past several years the past decade and uh writing the book was an absolute joy and wonderful experience to do with him that's awesome and there's a part in the book where you actually talk about how christianity is actually quite adaptable but yet european christians were saying no you have to practice it the way we do it and yet even jesus didn't practice it the way quote we do it yeah and so could could you talk about mark about that how to be how to be a, a, a Native American and a Christian at the same time? Well, so the challenge is, is when, just like with the boarding schools, when Western missionaries went out to preach the gospel, um, they, the experience of most indigenous peoples all over the world was not only that we heard about this guy, Jesus, but most of us were colonized by the gospel. Here's this guy, Jesus, we were told, you have to get to know him. He likes it best if you speak English. He likes it best if your sermons have three points. He likes it best if you have the things set up like an academic classroom. You know, like all, you, so they brought in this whole culture, this assimilation along with the gospel, along with their faith. And so there's a lot of native indigenous Christians all over the world who are asking these questions. What does it mean to be indigenous and follow Jesus. You know, when I was in college, I did some study on time perception and began looking at what's the difference between the Navajo and the Western perceptions of time. And through that study was really understanding that Western time is linear and native or indigenous time is much more circular. Western time, you have a, a very abrupt starting and ending point. Indigenous time, you much more concerned about completing the tasks. And so when we're having discussions about contextualizing worship, what does it mean to contextualize our worship of Christ for our cultures and for our context? A lot of people begin that conversation with their tools. Well, what, what instruments can we use? What kind of regalia can we wear? What kind of food do we do? How do we associate with what's sacred? But because of my study on time perception, I really try to frame it from what, how are we setting up the service? Because the Western service is set up in a very linear way. Um, you know, it's 57 and a half minutes long. It always ends before the football game starts. I mean, it and has. Don't, don't you dare go over. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are lives are hanging in the balance here because of these schedules. <laughs> and, and yet indigenous, you know, a friend of mine says, yeah, Western, Western Christians have church from 10 to 11.05 on Sunday. Um, he said, Navajos have church on Sunday. You know, it's like <laughs> you kind of go and you show up, you know, and, and the way that just because of the way we approach time. And so this really opened up a lot of discussion on, on what does it mean to really come to Christ? within the fullness of our culture, not just worried about talking about what instruments do we use or what kind of songs do we sing, but how do we set up the entire service? 
you know, when I lecture on this in seminaries all across the country, and oftentimes when I go in, I'll ask the students, um, you know, who here's ever been to a contextualized worship service? And usually one or two of the students who are raised overseas will raise their hands. One or two international students will raise their hands. And the rest, of the mostly white students, will just sit there looking at me. And I'll, I'll say to them, I'll say, so the rest of you have never been to a contextualized service. And they say, yes. Well, I said, then can I assume that you worship in Sunday in a synagogue, or on Saturday in a synagogue in Hebrew? <laughs> and they all assure me, no, we go to church, three-point sermon, everything else. Well, guess what? You've been to a highly contextualized Christian worship service. You know, if Jesus came in, he wouldn't be mad, but he would be confused. You know, why do you have it set up this way? What's the reason for doing it this way instead of that way? And help people understand that, yeah, almost every form of worship in Christian services we have in the U.S. today are highly contextualized worship services. Not that they're wrong. They've been changed. They've been adapted. So they make sense to Western European culture. And so while the Western Europeans felt a certain freedom to contextualize their worship for who they are, Indigenous peoples also should be able to take that freedom to contextualize our worship so it makes sense to who we are and how we're approaching life and how we um, even understand what is sacred and who we're worshiping. And that's an important point. I think a lot of Christians in, in the United States, at least, or in the West in general, we, we don't recognize the fact that the way we worship is, is highly contextualized to the white European heritage. Um, you know, we harken back to the Reformation and we think that was the only Reformation that ever happened in the world. Yet reformations in the broader sense have happened all, it's always happening. It's a constant, in every culture, it's constantly shaping. Because even in synagogues, when I talk to my rabbi friends, they're like, oh, well, we didn't worship this way 200 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. Even in the synagogue, things have changed. And the way, th the way they approach things in the United States versus Israel versus um, Jews in Russia or anywhere else, there, there are similarities. But there's a, you're right, there's a lot of contextualization that happens. And that's the adaptability, I think, of faith in general is that we see God or we experience God within our context and through that lens, no matter how limiting that lens may be at times. And everybody has, every culture has their blind spots, right? And I think the problematic aspect of that has been um, not that the gospel has been contextualized. That's pretty normative for church history. It's had to be contextualized for the Roman government. It has a Roman society. It was contextualized when it went to Africa and to Latin America. Um, I think the, the problematic piece of it was the assumption that Western contextualization is the definitive expression of Christian faith. Right. And, and in our book, what we're trying to point out is the way that that Western imagination, Western worldview, uh, Western perception, self-perception, got so embedded into society uh, and through the church, it came in through the church, that it became normative. And so the problem is not that it was contextualized. The problem is that contextualization became the standard by which all other faiths or all other peoples were judged. So this Western white Christian, uh, Christian expression became normative. And if you are in a black church, then it's not quite as good. If you're in a native community, Christian community, it's not quite as good. Uh, so that was part of the problem. And one of the things that Mark and I were exploring was, where did this come from? Where did these assumptions of uh, uh, centrality, white centrality or Western centrality or Western supremacy, where did these ideas come from? And um, you know, we un um, try to uncover and unsettle uh, these truths that are there, um, whether it's historical or theological, 
that throughout our nation's history, particularly American history, we have repeatedly gone to this assumption of the normalization and the central uh, and even the assumption of superiority of Western white culture over and against all other cultures. Yeah, there's a. I was just looking at my bookcase trying to find. There was a book called I think like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus or something, and it was about uh, that exact concept of contextualization. So you you both do an incredible job in this book of unpacking um, what makes up this whole doctrine of discovery, um, which is something that's actually was built over a period of years, mostly in the 15th century, but it's been kind of reformed and reshaped to that's become very contextual as well. Um, for those who haven't read the book, I'm wondering if you could give uh, give us the the three minute elevator definition of the doctrine of discovery, which is I know way more complex than three minutes will allow. But um, let's let's give it a try for the sake of maybe building a good foundation for the conversation. So what would what would be the three minute elevator speech of what is the doctrine of discovery? I don't know which one of you wants to take that on. So the doctrine of discovery, it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church. It says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Convert them to his and to their use and profit. It's essentially the church in Europe. And it actually says that explicitly, right? Yes. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever land you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours for the taking. So this is literally the doctrine that let European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the people. They didn't believe them to be human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions, and claimed to have discovered it. The first sentence in our first chapter of the book is, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. That was an important phrase. You can steal lands inhabited. You can conquer lands inhabited. You can colonize lands inhabited. You cannot discover them. And so the fact that we as a nation... That phrase, by the way, is, is emblazoned across the back cover yeah. of the book. Which yeah, is, that, yeah, that understanding, you know, so we have monuments to Columbus, we honor him as a nation, as the discoverer of America, which reveals the implicit racial bias, which is this belief that Native peoples, specifically people of color in general, are not fully human. So the book, it not only does it lay out how we got there, but then it it discusses a lot of how this worldview gets embedded into the foundations of our nation. It affects our Declaration of Independence, that after it calls all men are created equals, refers to natives as savages, our constitution, which excludes natives, counts Africans as three-fifths, never mentions women, even our Supreme Court case rulings that are based on this understanding that people of color, native peoples, African-Americans are not fully human. And so, yeah, the Doctrine of Discovery is it's a dehumanizing worldview that's rooted in Christian faith and in the the heresy of Christian empire. And it literally becomes embedded into the foundations of the nation. So there was a theological power that comes from the church's pronouncement, right? So this pronouncement that was a, a theological pronouncement becomes part of uh, political, social history. And as, as Mark was saying, it gets embedded uh, as a worldview, other languages, imagination, uh, narratives, 
uh, these perspectives get embedded into a uh, society and culture so that these uh, patterns of behavior reflect how deeply these narratives have become embedded in our society. So the example that I've been using is it's like if a, a good character actor gets so into a character that uh, even when he or she is off camera, still operates under the, the mode of that character because the character is so deeply embedded into who they are. Well, the, the, the doctrine of discovery, which was a white supremacist doctrine or European superiority doctrine, got so embedded into the American Western worldview that we continue to act reflexively out of that narrative and worldview. And that uh, what we were trying to point out is that you see this over and over again, and that uh, it, we can trace it back to several key places in church history where a theological pronouncement or a theological uh, dysfunction actually gets embedded into the worldview of, a, of an entire nation and people, and then we just continue to live into that dysfunctional narrative over and over again. And so how is that being lived out today? And you you get, in fact, this book is very contemporary in the sense that, it, I mean, it mentions the 2016 election. It talks about, you know, how the election of President Trump and how that came about and how the doctrine of discovery even fed into that. So what? how is that being lived out today? And or how do you see that in our culture today? I mean, I mean the, the argument, and you even talk about that in your book about how, well, we've had the civil rights movement. That's all gone in the past, right? And, you know, my denomination, the Presbyterian Church, finally, just in the last six years, finally said, hey, we need to make amends for what our denomination, people did in our denomination to native, to the indigenous folks in the United States, especially in the Southwest. And so we've begun the process and it's, it's you know, of, of apologizing and trying to figure out how do we, how do we change the dynamic that is still being fed in, in a, in a denomination that is 93% white. And, and, and that in itself, there's a guy by the name of Eric law. He's an Episcopal priest. He does a lot on, um, uh, racial, ethnic, intercultural communication. And he would talk about, you know, that that's not bad in and of itself, uh, because people need their cultural identities. It's when we start saying our culture is better than yours, I think is something he doesn't say that exact word, but yeah. that's kind of what he would say. So how is that being lived out today? Um, as far as the doctrine of discovery is still very much alive and well. Well, well it goes to, um, again, the embedded narrative. And even though we try to confront the systems that are evil and broken, like slavery, Jim Crow, New Jim Crow, uh, there's all these systems and structures, uh, boarding school phenomenon. I mean, these are really deeply uh, flawed systems and structures. So we've tried to tear down these systems and structures, these kind of engines of oppression. Uh, but at the end of the day, when we have not dealt with the fuel that drove these engines, then the engines get rebuilt and the fuel finds a different system to express itself. Um, so I think uh, what we've seen is over and over again, we've tried to address systems and structures and tear them down. But when we don't address the fuel, narrative fuel behind that or underneath that, we get these systems constituted over again. So, you know, uh, when we look at um, the way that the founding documents reflect the imagination of uh, Western white supremacy, um, well, that means that that worldview didn't get dealt with, and we see it pop up over and over again. The assumption of white American exceptionalism, the exception of assumption of white American Christian triumphalism. And so even though the systems and the external expressions might change, it's not, it's not the founding documents, it's not the system of slavery, it's not the system of Jim Crow, 
we are still getting different expressions of the same narrative over and over again. And you have a whole chapter dedicated to debunking the the mythology behind Abraham Lincoln uh, and his, and I have to admit, I took my history books at face value and said, oh, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. And you turn that completely upside down by actually telling us what's actually in the Emancipation Proclamation and its limits and, and his pragmatism about he was more interested in trying to keep the union together. He, he did not yeah. believe that black people should be free. He didn't believe that they should be judges and be elected and be in charge of anything. In fact, he was like, look, if it, if it takes sla- uh, freeing the slaves to keep the union together, let's do it. If it takes keeping slavery, let's do it. If it takes some combination, let's do it. Let's, it's about keeping the union together. Uh, and and he, the fact that in his first, was it his first inaugural, or maybe it was during the debates, uh, that he basically says, look, I don't think black people should be, you know, should be able to vote. Why, why would I do that? That's ridiculous. And obviously he doesn't use those exact words, but I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. This blew my mind because I realized I read that one paragraph in my history book <laughs> about that and took it at face value and said, okay, sounds good. Yeah. But there's so much more in our history um, that, well, he didn't really fl- free the slaves in that emancipation proclamation in some sense he did, but in a lot of sense he didn't. And he had all these little counties that like, or parishes saying, Oh, except for these areas. By his own admission, Abraham Lincoln was a blatant white supremacist. If you read the Lincoln Douglas debates, uh, judge Douglas and Abraham Lincoln absolutely agreed on white supremacy. They disagreed on the institution of chattel slavery. Um, Judge Douglas felt we needed chattel slavery to keep white supremacy in place. Abraham Lincoln was pretty confident we could keep white supremacy without Hmm. chattel slavery. Um, And so, but he was very adamant about, yes, there's a physical difference between white and black races um, that would forbid the two from living in terms of social and political equality. He said, I have no intention of making voters or jurors of black people or allowing them to hold office or to intermarry. Uh, You know, he he was a blatant white supremacist. And Native Americans weren't part of the conversation at all. Well, not only that, he actually, after signing the Pacific Railway Act in 1862, literally began ethnic cleansing Native peoples from the states of Minnesota, Colorado, and the territory of New Mexico. He was one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. And yet we never talk about that because we have this mythology constructed about him of how he freed the slaves and he was kind of our, our nation's conscience, you know, and, and he was even, I mean, he's the savior of America. He is the model of what it looks like for America to go from a slave owning nation to um, from an explicit to an implicit slave nation. Um, but so uh, the biggest challenge though, and this will bring it into today is in his inauguration, speech in 1862, Abraham Lincoln supported the Corwin Amendment, which would constitutionally protect slavery in states where it already existed. Now, that amendment, even though it was passed by the Senate, never got ratified. And so the, that would have been the 13th Amendment, had that amendment been ratified, but it wasn't ratified. The 13th Amendment we have, what it states is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereas the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. So the 13th Amendment doesn't abolish slavery. It merely redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Now, over the last two months, our nation has been having a very public and robust debate 
on Black Lives Matter. With the lynching of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department, there has been a debate about Black Lives Matter and about institutionalized white supremacy and systemic racism. Now, both Donald Trump and we've also had debates about Confederate monuments and what we should celebrate and all of that's the low hanging fruit, right? So both President Trump, he, his stance on the monuments is that we should keep them. Joe Biden's stance is that we should probably put them in the museum. Mm. They both agree we should still continue to honor slave owners like George Washington. They both agree with that. They would both agree, I'm quite certain, that we should still honor Abraham Lincoln, who was a white supremacist and basically gave us the institution of slavery in our modern era and committed genocide against Native peoples. They would both agree that those things are fine. So we've been having a, even a, a, a debate, not only about Black Lives Matter, not only have we been debating about um, institutionalized white supremacy, we've been debating the role of the police. And should we defund the police? Do we just need to teach them how to use different chokeholds? Joe Biden even suggested we, shoot, we train them to shoot people in the kneecaps instead of in the chest. I mean, we've been having a very robust debate about policism, right? Our policing, correct? And the interesting thing is, in this race, I am the only candidate who's calling for the abolition of slavery. Because everybody thinks it's done. Again, the 13th Amendment didn't abolish it. It redefined and codified it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system, which is the very mm -hmm. system that lynched George Floyd a couple months ago. And so if we want to actually reform our policing system, yes, at some point we need to talk about chokeholds. At some point we need to talk about shooting. At some point we need to talk about are we going to defund or rethink everything we do about policing? But we have to start the conversation with actually abolishing slavery. And neither of the two candidates or the two parties are interested in having that debate. Neither groups. In fact, we just had just two weeks ago, there was a Supreme Court case that came out, McGirt versus Oklahoma. And what, it, what was in question was, is the whole eastern half of Oklahoma a reservation? Does the state of Oklahoma have the right to disestablish the reservation? And there was a lawsuit went all the way to the Supreme Court. The opinion came out two weeks ago. And the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, they ruled in favor of, of the Creek Nation and in favor of McGirt. They overturned the lower court, court opinion. And they said the state of Oklahoma does not have the authority to disestablish reservation lands. But they reiterated over and over and over again at any point. In fact, whenever Congress can muster the will, they can break treaty and disestablish a reservation merely by saying so. And there will be yeah. no one to hold them accountable for that. And yeah. so again, this is, yeah. this is 2020 and we had a Supreme court case ruling literally stating that the U S Congress has the right to break treaties with native tribes and nobody will hold them accountable to that. Right. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> 
this whole Black Lives Matter thing. So, well, let me go back. Michelle Alexander wrote that book, The New Jim Crow, and she unpacked exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about, how the police became the new, became the enforcers of the new slavery uh, through incarceration. And, you know, the 13th Amendment saying that, you know, yes, they're free, except if basically if you're incarcerated, we can do whatever we want with you and we can put you to work and get not pay you. And, and, and unfortunately the way that's been taken is now that even after they've served their time, whether the allegations and the conviction was legitimate or not, they're criminals for the rest of their lives. In a lot of States, they don't even get to vote mm-hmm. if they're felons, if they're felons, they don't, they, they lose their right to vote for life basically, even after they pay their quote penance. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the vast majority of people being incarcerated are, um, at least by percentage by, mm-hmm. uh, are, are, are black people and native Americans and, and, and Latinx people, uh, mostly men on, on, on all of those. When people say that, you know, the fact that you're running on a, on a platform that says, Hey, no, we need to look farther back and we need to still end slavery. Even before the civil rights movement, we still haven't finished that debate. That is going to be, that's news to people. And most people are going to say, no, wait a minute. That's not, no, we don't have slavery in the world in this, in this nation anymore. They're going to argue and they're going to say, no, this doesn't exist anymore. One of the things I love to tell people is if you if you really believe the U.S. Constitution was written to include everybody, get on a Zoom call with African-Americans, Native Americans and women and read the document out loud in front of them. You will be embarrassed. It is Mm. so clear how quickly you don't even have to read very far before you start seeing the exclusion. We just, in our campaign, we released a, um, one of our 100-day our plan, our plan for the first 100 days in office. And we, our plan is we want to remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. On my campaign website at marktrial2020.com, we have um, a, an edited version of the Constitution. We're not changing checks and balances. We're not changing balance of powers. But we went through, I went through the Constitution with a strike-through font. And every time I came across a statement, a phrase, a word that was racist, sexist, or white supremacist, I put a strike through font through it. If you read the Constitution, there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns, 51 he, him, and his, who can run for office, who can hold office, even who's protected by the Constitution. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire document. People say, well, the old English was inclusive. It could go, you go back and look at the old English. You go back and look at the time of the old English. They were not inclusive. Not only does it not mention women, but women weren't even allowed to vote. They weren't even considered uh, legal to vote. And so while maybe, yes, you could, you could argue that he could have meant her, but there is no way that the people who wrote he actually meant her. <laughs> like, this is not the way they lived um, back in the 1700s. And so let's remove that. So I took all those male pronouns and replace them with gender neutral or proper nouns. All of the exclusionary, the the three-fifths compromise in Article 1, Section 2. Let's just take that out. So we actually have a version of the Constitution that actually makes the Constitution say what most people think it says anyway, which is that everybody's included. Yeah. Um, and then our goal is to try and pass that, is to pass that, to present that to the Senate, have them pass it, and get it ratified by the states in the first 100 days in office, so that we can actually begin 
now addressing the deep systemic problems we have, but our foundations actually reflect those values. Right now, the problem is, is that our foundations don't reflect those values. Our foundations is where the white supremacy, the racism, and the sexism lies. What I love about your book is that you look at all of this through the theological lens. And, and, and I know that's a huge generalization because there are actually lots of theological lenses out there. <laughs> But you go back to, you know, the, 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 the nation of Israel, the, the ancient people of Israel, uh, you even talk about and contrast that with the modern state of Israel, uh, subtly, but you do it, <laughs> um, or at least in one part, it was subtle. Mm -hmm. What does all this have to say as far as Christians are concerned, those who follow, seek to follow in the way of Christ, what does all this have to say in the midst of a pandemic that has in my less than humble opinion, been horribly managed and addressed by mm -hmm. our governments, plural, um, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the rise of white nationalism from the hidden shadows of our nation. Uh, although some would say they've always been out there and explicit, they just weren't in the news. Now they are. Um, which is sort of the, and the black lives movement is sort of the latest in a series of civil protests over several years, at least recently, um, against racism in our law enforcement and social systems, uh, that have resulted from the killing of black people. Rarely do we hear about how natives are policed and how native folks, indigenous folks are treated, um, both on and off the reservations. Uh, and yet, Native folks are being killed and discriminated against on a, on a massive scale as well. Man, that's a lot. How do we, and I'm, I'm white. I'm, my parents are, my grand, my lineage is from Wales. I mean, you can't get whiter than Wales, <laughs> you know, and Germany, or at least they, you know, Germany, they at least tan well in Wales. They just, we just burn. So how, how do, what, how do we speak this sort of renewed limelight on the doctrine of discovery and how it um shaped the the concept of manifest destiny which i learned in school as a glorious thing it was a beautiful thing mm. it, it was a horrid bloody killing machine really and gave people license to go and kill whoever and whatever was in their way how do we read that now that we're here now that we're here in 2020 we have the united states it's established uh, the idea of undoing that, it's probably not going to happen until the whole system finally crashes like every great empire does eventually, that it just implodes on itself. And we're sort of heading in that direction, some would say. How does this whole idea of unpacking and really looking at the doctrine of discovery speak to what is happening in our streets today, I mean, including the pandemic? Because I think the pandemic is is also a symptom of what's happening with the rate of folks uh, in various social ethnic communities that are being hit the hardest. Well, as a, as a seminary professor, I will um, confess on behalf of all seminaries everywhere um, and all Christian educators everywhere. That's a big statement. That man. is a big statement <laughs> on behalf of every seminary educator ever has lived. Um, I would say we have not done our jobs. Well, if we have created a generation of pastors and Christian leaders uh, and this includes Christian authors and kind of those who have kind of helped to create this American Christian culture over the last century or so. Uh, we have done a horrible job of getting the truth out there. 
And uh, we have created narratives, imaginations, thoughts, ways of thinking that have done a disservice to the kingdom of God and that has actually operated in the opposite direction than I think what God had intended and Jesus had intended in the first place. So I would say that let's start with a self-examination to say, okay, where did we go wrong here? And part of that is the miseducation of our, of our Christian communities. Um, and uh, so much of our Christian education has been infused with subtle and not so subtle forms of white supremacy that we didn't even recognize how you know, wrapped up we were in that, and that's the narrative we've been teaching. Uh, and so, you know, to put it in kind of these, uh, these terms, uh, to see some of the extremely dysfunctional and broken responses from the church around all of these tragedies is very much an indication of, of we've done a terrible job over the years, and now we're bearing the, the rotten fruit of that terrible job. Um, and so when we have churches at the forefront of saying, hey, why wear a mask and why obey, you know, uh, social distancing guidelines? Because it doesn't hurt us. It hurts black and brown people, but it doesn't hurt us. Or it hurts native people, but it doesn't hurt us. So we can go ahead and do that. Um, we can go ahead and, you know, go to the beach and hang out at Disneyland because, you know, we're good, great white American Christians who don't get harmed by these kinds of things. And so, you know, that's some really bad teaching that got deeply embedded in, uh, that, the, that folks are, are saying, I do these dysfunctional, broken things because of my faith. Um, I call AOC a name because for God, family, and country. Are you kidding me? Um, yeah. You know, I'm I'm going to stand while everybody else is kneeling because my faith won't allow me to do. Are you kidding me? So there's a whole bunch of this badly lived into or baked into American Christianity, and that's why I'm saying I, as a seminary educator, will take part of that responsibility because we did not teach our pastors well, so that what they're teaching in their churches, we end up with this kind of dysfunctional expression. And so some of the work of this book, and I think some of the teaching that we want to do, is to shine a bright light on this brokenness and these really hurtful, harmful narratives. Um, you know, the fact that Christians are the ones jumping from Black Lives Matter to All Lives Matter, that, that tells me there was a huge theological misfire. Uh, what I've been saying is the statement, Black Lives Matter, is a pronouncement by God to make up for all the garbage that is out there that says black lives do not matter. And yeah. so when a white evangelical says all lives matter, not black lives matter, I'm sorry, what you're doing is a theological heresy against the word of God itself. The word of God says black lives matter, and you're actually watering that down. And, and that comes from a place where people have been poorly educated or poorly discipled to the point that they can say something that is clearly not of the gospel not of the word of God, but still feel like they're doing God's work. So we got to take responsibility as teachers, as pastors, as educator, educators to say, boy, we've done some, a really bad job of, 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 of teaching our congregations if this is some of the product that we're seeing. 
And, and and part of the thinking, if I may unpack that a little bit, it's not that God is, isn't saying all lives matter. It, it's the fact that we right. can't say all lives matter until black lives and brown lives really do matter. And right, right now they, they don't because right. so much in our culture says black lives really don't black and brown lives really don't matter. Whether right. it's, we're talking about immigrants coming from Central America, escaping violence that the U.S. has had a huge hand in creating yep. and, 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 uh, perpetuating, uh, or, you know, you know, African-Americans or indigenous or, I mean, right. So we're saying that all lives matter. Yes, but we can't really say that honestly until we actually start acting and behaving in a way that says these lives really do matter and we need to take them seriously and have compassion and actually change the systems that are oppressing them. Is that Well, it's just the historical fact. The historical fact is over and over again, and, and what we're trying to show in our book is that society, American society has said over and over again, black lives do not matter or native yeah. lives do not matter or brown lives do not matter that's been a long standing position of american society so when god responds and says let's get this out there as a response to the broken statements that are out there if the broken statements are black lives do not matter then let's bring a theological truth black lives matter there's never been a moment in american history where we've said all lives do not matter that has never happened because white landowning lives have always mattered. White women's lives have mattered in some places less than others, but they've mattered. White landowning men, their lives have always mattered. So to stay all lives matter is not responding to a social reality. All lives do not matter. It's responding to black lives matter. So that's where I don't mind the phrase all lives matter unless you're saying it as a response to black lives matter. If you're saying all lives matter as a, as a response to a social reality, all lives do not matter. Okay, I understand that. You're responding to a social reality. But you're but not, not as you're a not, protest against not as a protest matter. against a theological statement that is in our society. So, if I can categorize you a little bit, this is coming from what many someone who many would call an evangelical conservative. You're you know, the, the church that you're part of is is part of that evangelical conservative movement. Um, maybe not the you know, you right. But it's the evangelicals. The evangelical conservatives are the ones that are saying, hey, this Black Lives Matter stuff is BS. Hey, all lives matter. Yay, go Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's how you define evangelical. You know, I, I like to say I'm evangelical, but I'm not a jerk about it. Um, I'm evangelical, hey, but that's I'm... that's <laughs> just like we read on the website. Yeah, <laughs> That's actually... That's, that's what the... they need to put on there. We're evangelical, but we're not jerks. <laughs> that's, that's actually my... That was my suggestion for the website. Evangelicals, but not jerks about it. Um, but also, you know, the difference between Mark and I, you know, we might not identify in your classical evangelical language, but, you know, we have things that, you know, are high, you know, view of, you know, they're, uh, but we're people of color. We're folks who are not coming from the typical narrative around evangelicalism. Yeah. And so, you know, whether we identify as evangelical or not, uh, the white evangelical narrative is not necessarily what, uh, what I'm coming from as an Asian American. Um, I'm, I'm influenced by it, I'm shaped by it, but it's not where I'm really necessarily coming from. So there's a differentiation there as well, that evangelicals of color have a different set of life experiences where we would respond to some of these uh, kind of statements from white evangelicals, probably in a significantly different manner. Yeah. And hey, I, I would... Oh, go oh, ahead, Mark. I'm just expanding on some of what Sung Chan has been saying. I would say four of the most pivotal chapters in the book um, chapters three and four and chapters nine and 10 were chapters that weren't even a part of the original um, outline. So three and four deal with how do we get from the teachings of Jesus 
to a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery. And chapters nine and 10 deal with the blatant white supremacy and ethnic cleansing policies of Abraham Lincoln. Neither of these four of, of these two topics were in the original outline. And it really changed not only some of the of the content of the book, but it changed even some of the thesis or where we were going with the book. Um, and so for me to to lay out very clearly, as we do in chapters three and four, how we got from the teachings of Jesus, who said things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you to a dehumanizing doctrine discovery, which literally came through this heresy known as Christian empire. And which was a rejection of Jesus's what I would the way we phrase it in the book is his barometer of suffering. So in the Old Testament, under the old, the under the under the the land covenant, the people knew they were doing well with God based on their prosperity. Right? If they obeyed God, He would bless them in their land. If they mm-hmm. disobeyed God, He would exile them from it. So it wasn't the only barometer, but their prosperity was one of their barometers of their relationship with God. And in the New Testament, you have Jesus saying, "Well, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when people's outcome to be." So He's giving them a new barometer. And he's promising that not only will the Messiah, the Son of Man, be persecuted and crucified, but his disciples will be persecuted. And that's the barometer that Peter starts shedding. He says, no, I, you don't have to die. And the, the whole second half of the Gospels, in the book of Mark especially, is the disciples saying, we don't like this barometer. They finally get it at Pentecost, and most of them go on to die a martyr's death. And then we see in the writings of Eusebius, I won't go through all the teaching of this, but where we see Eusebius also throwing off this, <laughs> this barometer of suffering and going back to this barometer of prosperity, which is what leads to creating this heresy known as Christendom. And this, for me especially, this really helped me understand where the church is at, which is it... it I don't doubt the faith of white evangelicals. I think they very much have met Jesus and they, they, they probably believe in him and they trust him. I'm not here to judge, are they Christian, are they not? But as far as do they understand Jesus' call, that he, not only is he going to be crucified and suffer and be persecuted, but his disciples are going to be persecuted and going to suffer. And, you know, just like when, when, when Jesus teaches the disciples this, he says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Why? Because they don't get it. They're not ready for it. Like they, they would go out and they would, they would start teaching falsely. And so I think that's a lot where the church is at today. The church, it understands that Jesus is the Messiah. It doesn't understand the Messiah was, has come to suffer. And so the church is trying to figure out a way to save its life rather than understanding how do we actually surrender and give up our lives. Very crucial understanding, but it helps me understand where the church is at and, and why we struggle with the things we're struggling. Why do we embrace this heresy known as Christian empire? And so those, those two chapters, chapter three and four, were very pivotal um, in helping understand how the church actually came to embrace this dehumanizing teaching 
which led to the very slippery slope that we're on today, where we we don't even know how to recognize the teachings of Jesus anymore because they've become so convoluted with the heresy of empire. Well, it's kind of, you know, one of the things that I, I've always said is Christianity doesn't do well when it's in charge. It's a, it's a, it's a faith for the under, underdog. It's the faith for the, for the people who are being, um, being oppressed in many ways, because you know, some of the worst thing and the best thing that ever happened to Christianity was Constantine. And you talk about that much in those chapters that you just mentioned in your book and how, when Christianity suddenly became empire that, you know, Jesus wasn't about empire. Jesus was about the kingdom of God, which is very distinct from empire, at least earthly empire. Um, and, and when, when it became empire, the power, the you know, power, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and the church started to gain a lot of that power and started to corrupt itself because of human desire and human, whatever you want to call it, sin, whatever you want to call it. And I, I think that's, I, I, and that's the struggle. I, because if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't, I likely wouldn't be a Christian. Christianity would likely be still this small sort of Middle Eastern cult. Uh, and I use that term loosely, not in the negative pejorative sense, but in the in the in the more classic uh, historical sense. So it's kind of this double-edged sword that Christianity became part of the Roman Empire. Um, and I know you're got, you, you guys have been very generous with your time. I know we have a hard stop that it was about 12 minutes, minutes ago. Um, <laughs> so maybe I would love it if you guys are willing, and now that we've figured out all the technologi- technological issues, maybe you guys would be willing to come back on and we can continue the conversation sometime, maybe after the election. I don't know. <laughs> uh, whenever you guys are free, is that something that you might be open to? Because this is good, and I feel like we could go on further without revealing too much from the book so that people will still buy it. That that would be fun, and uh, it it would also encourage people to read the book and get the book and uh, uh, take it apart, and then and, and maybe come up with some questions they can send your way too. It is a good book, and I've got all kinds of tabs and things and other places that I wanted to go and question. And, and I know we weren't, I knew we weren't going to have time to go through all that. Friends, you can find the book "Unsettling Truths" at any of your local bookstores. Please support your local bookstores. Um, and I just want to say, Mark um, Sung Chan, uh, this has honestly been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, for coming on and um, helping us unpack the history of how we got to where we are and this whole doctrine of discovery thing and its legacy here in the U.S. Um, I wish you both um, many blessings on your endeavors and and I hope you'll uh, you'll keep writing because I think there's even more you could probably put in here that you probably had to throw (laughs) away and the editors said no you're not going to put that in there because I know editors can do that. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the Brewcast. Brewcast, you guys are awesome. And again, I hope I hope we can continue this conversation sometime in the next uh, next months or so. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on with you. We'd I love to come back and talk some more. Singchan, I love uh, getting together on these types of podcasts and talking Amen. about this book and where we've been with it and where we're going with it. So, yeah, we'd love to do that. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the Faith and Coffee Brewcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Be of good courage. Know that you are loved. You can contact Faith and Coffee at eric, E-R-I-C, at faithandcoffee.com.
The Faith and Coffee Brewcast is a podcast about Christian life and faith in the everyday. Check out the Faith and Coffee Brewcast at brewcast.faithandcoffee.com or on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. You can also subscribe to the Faith and Coffee blog at faithandcoffee.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash faithandcoffee. Be sure to click on that like button. The opinions expressed in this episode do not and are not intended to represent the opinions or official positions of any of the organizations with which I, Eric Letterman, am associated. Faith and Coffee is produced by Bad Coffee Productions, LLC in Chandler, Arizona. 